Hello and welcome to This Spiritual Fix, Episode 9, Season 2. This is Episode 3 in our four-part Drama Triangle series, and today we're talking about The Dark Passenger, that secret compartmentalized part of yourself. This Spiritual Fix. Two Mystical Mamas Hacking the Self-Help Game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hi, Chris. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. And we are going to be talking today about The Dark Passenger. The Dark Passenger in the series of the Drama Triangle is something that we actually recorded before we even knew about the Drama Triangle or before I even knew about it to lead the series. But we believe that it fits really, really well into the series because the Dark Passenger is what we can consider something that has become destructive in our lives, whether that's because they are a persecutor or whether it is because they are rescuing us or whether it is because something along those lines. So, so you will hear throughout this episode us talking about the dark passenger, but we don't actually mention the drama triangle. But this will let you know for context that we consider the dark passenger essentially what we could be either a self-destructive or a self-sabotaging aspect of ourselves that we oftentimes are ashamed of and are hidden. Anna, do you want to add to that? Yeah, Carl Jung talks about the, he calls it the shadow. Other people call it the dark passenger, but it's essentially like this hidden part of ourselves that we don't want to reveal to others. It's the part of us that seeks conflict or creates conflict or creates self-destruction. And it's a part of us that we all have. And some of us have it to more degrees than others. And some of us, it's, you know, for someone, it might be, you know, the hidden addict. It might be they're their a drug addict. For some, a sex addict or a porn addict, it could be their secret obsession with porn. Or if you're a mom, it might just be that mom guilt you get when you lose your temper. So we all carry aspects of it. And it's the part of ourselves that we kind of morally judge ourselves for. And it also, it's, it's like an, it's a non-integrated part of our life, basically, that we kind of put aside and like, that's someone else, you know, because I'm so awesome. How could I possibly include, you know, this uh, porn addict or whatever? So there's that. But I wanted to point out that with the drama triangle, we talk a lot about the inner dynamic between the three different points on the triangle, the rescuer, the, the persecutor, and the victim. And that's more, we've been talking mostly in terms of external relationships, like, you know, me and my husband, we flip back and forth between rescuer, victim, persecutor. And then, you know, Chris and I got in a fight and she was persecutor as victim. And then I instantly flipped. And, you know, we keep talking about that on the external level, meaning how we interact with others. But the dark passenger is more of an internal drama triangle. So even inside our own psyche, you could say that there's different voices inside our mind or different roles we play inside our mind. We'll we'll call that the internal drama triangle. So the dark passenger is in essence the persecutor or rescuer inside our own mind that victimizes us. Yeah. And that is separate. And I think that's a really great way of describing it is that it is something that we normally compartmentalize and don't consider ourselves, or it is incongruous with how we view ourselves. 
Right. right. Like, yeah, I think the classic example is like the cheater who needs to cheat in order to put on the like, I'm the best guy in the world face to his wife. That's and he, exactly needs, he needs this outlet of like, someone told me this joke, but I had a friend who worked as a prostitute. And she said, like, some of the nicest guys would come to her that treated their wives amazing. And they would want to come and like spit on her because they're like, I can't be bad with my wife, you know, like, I mean, that's an extreme example, but yeah, maybe I we'll mean, put that I in. mean, that's, but, but that, that is, I know somebody else who is a very successful business person. And I think I, what I've divined is that coffee and alcohol in particular, pull them into their dark passenger self. Right. And it turns them into this like very harsh, very like stereotypical business person who is very unfeeling and cold. And when they don't have those stimulants, then they come back into themselves. But I've, I've been able to see through reading them that, you know, a lot of it comes from a trauma of knowing that they need to succeed on behalf of everybody else. So it's like they're having to drug themselves or stimulate themselves into a different place so that they can kind of become this other part of themselves. And it is very compartmentalized. Like they are, it's like having, it's like talking to two different people yeah, when you talk Dr. to the Jekyll business person. It, it really is. It really is. So, yeah. So all right, so without much ado, let's begin the original episode. All right, thanks so much. Enjoy. Hi, Christina, co-host of This Spiritual Fix. Has listening to our podcast stirred up something for you with the primal wounds? The good news is, is you have access, and that is the first step to transforming these wounds. We created support packages to help you through this process, and they're available on our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com. These packages were designed by Anna and I, combining techniques and hacks from our own experience working through our own wounds. Each packet contains a workbook and two meditations, one about forgiving those who have wounded you, including yourself, and one about reprogramming old beliefs. You can buy an individual support package or for those next level processors, all five packets, abandonment, injustice, rejection, betrayal, and humiliation. Available on our website in our shop. Hi, Anna. Hi, Christina. How are you doing today? I'm actually doing so good. I'm really good. As uh, you know, I had an RTT therapy, which is a rapid transformation therapy with Gerard Hill. I, I briefly spoke about it in a previous episode. I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. But he gave me a, tw- um, a hypnosis to listen to for 21 days. And he also told me, if you find the right therapist. You will only ever need one RTT in your life because they will figure out what your issue is and resolve it. But I had to commit to listening to his tape for 21 days, which I did. And I feel so good. I just feel like, um, basically I think we uncovered the root cause of a lot of my suffering Yeah, and we unraveled it somehow. And then he somehow programmed me to just be happier somehow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> somehow, we're not quite somehow, sure. I'm not quite sure, like all this. Um, yeah, I just feel really good. I feel like I am appreciating everything more. I just feel really centered. I feel really happy. I just feel like I'm in a really good place. Are you allowed to give us any insight as to what your root thing was? Well, um, strangely enough, my root thing. My root issue came, basically, I went back to a memory My and I saw a memory, a trigger warning for anyone, but my brother had an allergic reaction to a vaccine when he was about four months old and he um, 
what completely like died on the, uh, on the kitchen table. He went completely blue. And my mother was a neonatal nurse. Like of all jobs in the world, she knew how to resuscitate an infant. Like you could not have better synchronicity in that situation. So she revived my brother and the ambulance came and he's fine now. He's alive and well. He had a, a near death experience at four months old and he probably doesn't even know that this happened. But it was shocking to me as a three-year-old to see my brother and, and to see my parents in chaos and yeah. fearful of life mm-hmm. and scared of losing their baby. And, you know, scary to see all the, the, the EMT show up. And I don't know why, but somehow that memory, like seeing that memory again and sorting it out, like unraveling the knots that were tied up at that age, it's just, I'm not afraid of life. I'm not afraid of enjoying life. And I, and I, and I still can't wrap my head around, like, why did that childhood memory have so much to do with me as an adult enjoying life? It doesn't make any sense. And I asked him later, I asked Gerard, I'm like, you know, when I think about my memory, like my brother dying on the kitchen table, being resuscitated, like, why would that have affected me so much as an adult? It didn't even happen to me. And he said, You know, it was scary for a child. It was a lot of chaos and a child can't wrap their mind around what they see. And so they try to make meaning and understanding of things that might not be there. And as you grow up, you start to attribute certain things to other things and you start to put meaning on things. And you just, just by taking that apart and unraveling it, I somehow am able to enjoy life more. And, and I don't, I, 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 it's almost um, an emotional thing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't cognitively make any sense. I, I can't tell you cognitively why that helped me so much. Yeah. But I think that it was just very scary to see that as a kid. And that fear now kind of got unraveled. And, and then I wonder about my own brother, right? Like, what did he go through? Right. Um, if he could remember that. Right. I'm, well, yeah. So, I mean, and then my sister was there. She was older. She's about five or six when it happened. You know, and I don't want to talk about people who aren't here about their own spiritual process, but I'm just saying in general, things that we see in our childhood can really affect us in ways we have no idea how. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that, that unraveling that thread has just been very wonderful and I don't understand it, but the beautiful thing is I don't really feel like I have to. I'm okay with it not making any sense and that I'm just happier. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really amazing. Yeah. That's really, really, it's like the foundation stone, right? It's like you like, you pull out the keystone and everything else falls down because you got that one thing and, and all of your other events were, were based on that one belief or that one like understanding of the world and by undoing it and and actually understanding it as an adult, um, you're able to process it and unravel everything else. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't know how he figured that out, but he did and it's working. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Fantastic. Did you find that, did you find that you had an immediate response like right afterwards or did you think that, um, or did it take like the full 21 days to kind of like really settle in? I immediately felt better and I immediately felt happier Mm-hmm. But then, you know, usually after these sessions, you know, you have an amazing insight, an amazing session. And after a few days, things kind of go back to the way they were slightly better. 
But in this case, it's just gotten progressively and progressively and progressively better. And that's what he told me. He told me it's like a domino and you knock down one domino. It just knocks down the rest and the rest and the rest. And it just goes all down the line. And that's how exactly how I feel. I just feel like every day is exponentially better than the one before it. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I did mine this morning and I'll mention it a bit later in this uh, thing. It was interesting though, at the end, he was like, I could tell that you're, you flip flop between your subconscious and your conscious. And I was like, I didn't even notice that that was the case, but, but apparently I may have done so, but it was an, it was a very interesting experience and I'm still obviously settling into it a little bit. Uh, but it, it was, it was a marathon. It was three hours. It was basically being under hypnosis for two and a half hours, um, which is like a really, which was really intense for me. I feel like strangely rested, but also very kind of like my brain's like, what am I doing right now? Like a little bit out of body is how I feel right now. So that's it. That's, that's a, a from the front lines of having just experienced this a couple hours ago, this is where I am right now with that. So um, you can hear it from both perspectives for this rapid transformational therapy. All right, so let's get straight into it, which is completely not in my plan, but that is okay. Um, I letting did, go of the betrayal wound. <laughs> we're letting go of the betrayal wound and the need to control, and we're just going to go straight with Um So I want to talk today about dark passengers. And let me explain to you guys what dark passengers is to me. And then, Anna, if you have a different interpretation, I would love to hear that. So I've worked with a lot of people in intuitive work. And I'm going to be honest, I'm usually working with people who know people with really prominent dark passengers and don't necessarily have the dark passengers themselves. But I think most of us have a low level of dark passengers. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, uh, that's the kind of setup for the rest of it. To me, a dark passenger is effectively a part of yourself that holds a lot of unprocessed trauma and behavior that usually stems from this trauma that is considered unacceptable or not socially acceptable or destructive or traumatic to other people or things along those lines. So to get more specific, it's abuser, dark passengers, it's adulterer, dark passengers, it it's uh, addictive, dark passengers, sometimes it's narcissistic, dark passengers, sometimes it's mentally... Well, it's not usually mentally unstable. That's usually kind of the, more in the abusey, uh, the victim kind of side of it. And this is a dark subject. I'm not going to lie. And so before I go into this anymore, uh, the, this is what Archangel Michael is telling me to do is that everybody, I just want everybody to, we're going to do a, a quick thing right now in which everybody, I want y'all to do this thing called putting an octahedron on you. Anna, do you want to lead the octahedron? Can you create the octahedron to our listeners right now? <laughs> All right. An octahedron is a an octahedron is a sacred geometry form. And this is coming from Jim Self's work, which we will link in the show notes because I can't remember the name of it. But what you're gonna do is you're going to create a, a force field of of energy around you to protect you. Personally, I always have one on, but I make mine exceptionally stronger when I'm going through airports, hospitals, or anywhere else where people are just like a lot of people or upset people. So what you're going to do is you're going to imagine two four-sided pyramids around you, one with the apex 
above your head and one with an apex below your feet. Like you imagine if you reach in straight in front of you, you imagine putting a rose there and then straight out to the, your right side, a rose there. And then you lift up your left arm, you put a rose there. There's one directly behind you as well. And so you just link those all up to make your your base. And then from there, you make a pyramid going up above your head and a pyramid going below your feet. And then you spin it. You spin the top either clockwise or counterclockwise. In the bottom, you spin it in the opposite direction. And you start to spin them so fast that they spin at the speed of light and essentially then expand to make a cocoon around you. If you imagine yourself doing that, it's already done. Thank you, Anna. I have used this to tell a lot of my clients and friends when things get scary, say they have children who are having nightmares, say they have, say you may be experiencing a lot of dark shadows when you walk around your house during the day. Like I've, I've indicated this for a lot of different things and it's a, it's a good way to just feel a little bit safer in any situation. Um, you know, once you kind of get used to doing that kind of work, eventually you realize that the, you know, you don't need the light and you can kind of go in unprotected, so to speak. But it is a really good way of doing this. And it also sets you up in your sacred geometry. I remember um, the, uh, I used to hear that when I studied sacred geometry a lot, that like the Atlanteans, the Atlanteans would always have planar solids around them. Planar solids being another word for sacred geometric symbol, like depending on what they were doing, they would always have that structure around them and that we don't even have any recollection of, of like how all of the EMF fields and all the different things affect us. And yet these sacred geometric, these like planar solids can help that a lot. So check. Everyone has uh, either listened to Anna do it and therefore has subconsciously done it or uh, has actively done it and you can do it on a regular basis. Okay. So more into back into dark passengers. So the idea being that, you know, we all often have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde part of us, right? We basically have a part of us that is secret and hidden inside of us. And sometimes it acts out and it actually has a place in the world. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes it just sits in our mind as the cr critical voice that's inside of us that's always generating the thoughts that are self-destructive. Um, and so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about um, kind of what the different forms that this dark passenger can come in. I kind of want to talk about what we can do to address these dark passengers, especially if they exist within our minds. Um, that's where we start because thought is the predecessor to all action. Um, Anna, what do you think about that? Do you have a different definition of dark passenger? Um, to be honest, I didn't even know what a dark passenger was until today, <laughs> five minutes ago. <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't ever really thought about it. I guess it's the part of us that we deny. If I was to ask myself, what is my dark passenger? Would my Could I call my PMDD my dark passenger, Chris? You totally could. Yeah. Okay. Well, then in that case, I totally know the dark passenger. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's yeah. Just another, it's just another word for it, right? Okay. Yeah. So I have a beautiful dark passenger who I adore and she is as cute as can be. And it took me so many years to recognize how amazing she is. But I have a dark passenger, and her name is PMDD, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder. Yeah. So, so for me, what happens is, is I have PMDD, which is a severe form of PMS, which means that there are about three or four days out of the month that I want to burn everything down. 
Like I seriously, this voice comes in my head and it's like, burn it down, burn it all down, fucking burn it all down. I will, I will destroy this dark passenger of mine has no problem destroying relationships whatever it's like anything like burn it all down no there's she almost, no she almost destroyed the passenger uh, the the podcast this month didn't she oh she almost destroyed the podcast my husband's a saint because she has tried to destroy this marriage many times um she's just a fucking psycho bitch but i don't know if, when i if i don't want to like i don't want to yeah. hightail this conversation but yeah i have a dark passenger she's fucking psycho bitch and i love her but that's another yep. story no, no, that's that's the end of the story, but that's okay. We're foreshadowing. I don't even think okay, we're foreshadowing <laughs> a love affair with my dark shadow. Yeah. So Anna wanted to hear about my RTT, so I'm going to tell her about my RTT right now. And I'm oh going to tell her all about to, it too. I get to hear it. I get to hear it for the first time in public. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So first of all, do you love Gerard's voice? It's good. I love, the Irish, I love the Irish mm-hmm. accent. Like to me, that was mm-hmm. a, that was a selling point. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, it was really nice. So in my RTT today, we had done a lot of discussion about stuff that I've talked about on this podcast. I talked a lot about, um, feeling, feeling neglected from my mom, about my parents separating when I was two, about not feeling like I had a female role model in my life, um, about um, all sorts of things. And what, what I was the heart of kind of what I was trying to get at was the fact that I have this pattern and this is what I do every day. I get up and I usually, because I have a job in the UK, like that's based um, with people in the UK, I get up and I usually start work around six or seven every day. And if I'm not doing that, like I'm usually, I, I've been trying to do better and meditate and do that kind of stuff in the morning. But a lot of the times, especially if I find a reason to go to my computer, then I will end up at my computer, which means that I will largely ignore my kids, um, largely kind of go straight into the work zone and not necessarily spend the time with them. And then I like, I have a bunch of meetings all the way until 12 or one. And then it's like, all the energy, all the winds leave my sail. And I just find it really, really hard to switch from being in a conversation and like getting energy from other people to all of a sudden being by myself and just being like, I got to get on with it. And so I struggle with this a lot and I usually will take, I've been taking an, you know, about an hour break in the middle of the day because I start earlier. Um, sometimes it goes longer than that. And what will happen is around two or three, I'll finally kind of get there and I'll just start going through the motions. Like I'll just go through the motions. I'm not inspired by what I'm doing at all. And I'm just like, all right, I have to do this. I have to start this task, even though my executive function, my brain is just like, this is torture. Like, but I'm like, no, I'm going to open the file and then I'm going to try and maybe listen to a bunch of music or a podcast or even see something on the side because my brain needs that extra stimulation. And I kind of force myself. And it's only when I get to be around four or five at night when I should be signing off and spending time with my kids that I like, I, that's when I start to get motivated. And what will happen is I will usually start a task around four 30 and then I will continue and start working late. So not only have I cut off the morning with my kids, but I've also cut off the evening. And this realization really only hit me yesterday that there is a lot of my 
wow. failure to motivate at work that is connected with my fear of being with my kids. And I am the first person to admit this. And I think it was one of the crones who I, um, I have a, a, I'm in the circle, the wild women circle with in Indiana. Um, I have been, who was just like, I struggled so much with parenthood and motherhood, despite the fact that I love my kids so much, but motherhood brought up all the stuff for me that I hadn't dealt with yet. It, it brought up all this stuff about, um, that I just had never resolved that I'd always thought that I had dealt with, but like, I never went to therapy for years, despite all the crap that happened. You know, I've done, I've done things here and there, but I've never just like gotten to the heart of it. And when motherhood happened, it was like, Oh crap. Like I got to deal with all this now. Um, and one of the crones had said to me back then, she said, you're just not an emotional mother. Meaning I'm not the type of person who like gushes over babies and I'm not the type of person who's like, I can't think of anything better than playing with my children. I literally cannot think of anything worse, um, despite <laughs> the fact that I love them. And that makes me feel so guilty to say that. I literally feel so guilty. Only recently I saw on TikTok that there's this woman who's just like, guess what? Mothers are not supposed to be entertainers. Um, that is a very recent development in the whole world of motherhood in Western culture. And I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> like I literally just like the most relieving thing ever to hear that. But that doesn't, you know, I can hear one person say that, but that doesn't change the fact that I want to spend quality time with my children, but I'm terrified of doing so. And why? I am terrified of spending time with my kids because I am afraid of my temper. I am afraid that I will not be able to handle their emotions when they come up because for whatever reason that I kind of call it emotional immaturity, right? I was never really taught. I was the only, the only emotional intelligence that I was given when it comes to dealing with my own emotions was you're either fine and everything's okay, or you're blowing the shit off the roof. And that was it. There was no in between. There was no like, let's figure this out. There was no like, this is a healthy way to handle your emotions. And so kids just do that naturally because they are emotionally immature. But I'm just about the same as a kid sometimes when it comes to anger in particular. And so for me, it terrifies me on, on two accounts. One is that I am completely terrified of being alone with my kids because I don't know if I'm going to yell and if I'm going to traumatize them and if I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. Uh, to me, it's a form of abuse. It's not, it's like, it's basically a common form of abuse in the sense that everybody does it, but like you can put whatever title you want on it. But like if something unexpected happens, right. If there's something that happens with kids, which is inevitable with kids, if there's something unexpected that happens, I'm afraid I can't deal with it. Right. So this goes both ways. This goes as a, to what it's called arrested. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say it's called arrested development you know, term. I do. I do know that term in the sense of, I didn't actually know it directly applied to that, but it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Arrested development is when you experience trauma or addiction, you freeze in time emotionally. So your mother getting sick when you were like two, you could very well be frozen in time emotionally as a two-year-old, but she died when you were six. So maybe it's when you're six, you know, and then you have someone who, who became, began, you know, doing heroin when she's 14 and now she's 30 and she's clean. She still has the emotional intelligence of a 14 year old yeah. because she started anyways, that's, emo that's called arrested development. I don't, it's also an awesome series on Netflix, but 
the point is, yeah, I mean, you basically are, might be frozen in time and you're the same emotional level as your children. So yeah. you're, they're like your peers emotionally. And that's kind of intimidating. It's exceptionally intimidating. Not only that, but you couple that with my kind of massive distrust of the world actually taking care and not just like throwing some spanner in the works in which somebody dies with me. Like, I'm really actually good at handling emergency situations. Like, I'm I'm surprisingly good in the moment, but my anticipation and anxiety of something bad happening um, is kind of a common thing for high anxiety people, especially like trauma-induced high anxiety or whatever terminology you want to put on it. And so for me, it's either everything's really controlled and everything's okay, which never happens with kids, which is like the the middle road, which is like the razor's edge. It's like never going to happen. Or it's falling to the one side in which something terribly dangerous is happening, or it's going to the side of like, my kids and I are getting in a fight because I can't handle it emotionally. Cause I'm just like, I'm just like, it's like, I'm just literally fine. And then I'm not, I've worked so hard on this. But it's still that trauma of being so fearful of being with kids that that either they're not there's even a part of me that's like, I'm afraid they're not going to like me. Like, can I handle my own kids rejection? Right? Like, all of the primal wounds we talk about all happen when it comes directly to dealing with my kids. And so, you know, recognizing for me this week, as I was getting ready for this RTT, that so many of my motivation issues at work were directly related to that same fear of like being able to switch from a very divine masculine, I'm in work, I'm in a work, I'm in a spreadsheet, I can control everything, everything's fine. I'm in my own little bubble and I can have conversations with professionals and those professionals are going to keep a certain, for the most part, are going to keep a certain social contract, which means we don't get over emotional and we don't, you know, like we don't do anything that's not, we're not supposed to. Um, so the divine, my divine masculine rules the day when it comes to my job because it's predictable. It's everyone has a social contract. They're supposed to work in a certain way and it's very controllable and I can do something and have a direct and effective impact on something else. And that's exactly where I want to be because it is the safest place I can possibly be. Um, it's even why I kind of moved out of client facing work, which was always so unpredictable. People weren't really behaving the way that they should, or they were upset all the time, or you were having to constantly deal with the emotional outputs of people. And it was really hard for me, but then I need to then at the end of the day, switch into my divine feminine and be the nurturing mom and be the mom who's there for her kids and who loves her kids and who wants to spend time with her kids, even if it's not entertaining them. And I was, I, I found that exceptionally difficult. So that's where I was going into this RTT. And it started out as it's basically, I went, I was, I was in, I was under regression for two and a half hours and a lot of memories. It was interesting. The first memory that came up was so confusing. And, you know, Gerard and I had talked beforehand about how it would be okay if past lives came up. I think I was a little bit intimidated to just like jump right in and be like, Hey, this is a past life. But then I started to recognize that it wasn't, it may have been a past life. It may have been um, a, like just another worldly experience. But the first one was I had a dream of being four years old at a carnival and I found a dead, I found a dead baby. And it was weird because it was like a magical situation where I was switching. I was the dead baby and then I was the four-year-old and then I was the dead baby and I was the four-year-old. And I remember thinking how um, similar to what you were talking about, Anna, about your brother and, you know, that safety that you didn't feel in the world, that memory of mine 
really resonated with like, you're, these people are supposed to be taking, this baby was supposed to have been taken care of. It was completely helpless and it wasn't taken care of. So people aren't doing their jobs. Why aren't people doing their jobs? Why, why, why do people feel like they can just leave something was it else? A- and this kind of overarching feeling of like, Hey, I, we can't, we can't trust people to do what they so need. So it was a dream do. memory. I, I think it was a past life. I think it was a past life. Um, when I register, it registers as a past life. But it also feels like a psychic experience, like a multidimensional experience where like you go back and see your own past life. You go back and see your own inner child sort of thing. Um, it just feels like it was a very mystical experience that happened in a past life. Um, but then I, I, you know, I kind of went through a lot of the standard trauma memories that I have um, in terms of being neglected. And as I mentioned um, earlier, like being neglected, you know, um, not having a proper role model, being, you know, shamed for wanting to be myself, all these different things. And what came out of this ultimately was that there had been about the time I was seven, what happened was that there arose this divine masculine aspect I'm going to say aspect, but you could say it's a dark passenger because it turned into one. It was not when I was seven, a dark passenger. It was an aspect that recognized that in order for me to become my, to get attention from my father um, in competition with my stepmother, um, in order for me to shut off the emotional part of me that I perceived as being weak um, for being sad that my mom died was that I basically created this persona called Hermes and Hermes was a ruthless, ruthlessly efficient, not girly, not anything scientist, like in, in its height, Hermes was around 15 or 16 when, um, I started conforming entirely to what my parents wanted. Um, it was when that it was around that time that I started thinking that art had no purpose in the world. The only purpose in the world was science because my dad was a science person and because my stepmom was a science person. And so, uh, I had to do that. Um, you know, basically it became this thing that helped me to survive, but then it transformed over time to now it it, it, that part of me, when it rules me, I don't want to have anything to do with being a mother. I don't want to have anything to do with like having divine feminine anything. I don't want to have anything to do with anything. And so one of the works that one of the things that we did in this RTT was we ultimately said, you can't dark passenger Hermes, who are you are now a dark passenger in my life because you are literally preventing me from enjoying the kind of sensuality of the divine feminine and the love of the divine feminine because you're wanting to be efficient and save everybody else and keep everyone safe and protected, which was his ultimate mandate is that now he doesn't serve me anymore. And my divine masculine is actually still there, but this is not, this is just an aspect of my divine masculine that has been running the a show perversion. for way too fucking long. It's a perversion. It's a perversion. Um, and that's where we got to, and I'm still processing it, but you know, it's an example of a dark passenger that comes that started off as a protective mechanism, right? That started off as a, as something that, that helps you to survive. And yet you haven't gotten rid of it. And a lot of people, I know I've worked with a lot of people who are just like, you don't need this. You don't need this part of yourself anymore. You need to let go. This, this part no longer serves you. It thinks it does. And it may be hesitant to go away, but 
it needs to go away because it's it's ruining the balance of everything else that's happening and causing the perversion within you. So yeah. Um, Bye, Hermes. Bye, Hermes. Bye, Hermes, indeed. Um, I want to Google Hermes because I, I think he was important. Yeah, the Hermes God of actually War. did like the Emerald the Tablet. God of War? Yeah, he was... No, that's Ares. Hermes is the messenger god. Hermes is the, um, he was the alchemist, actually. Hermes. He was, he was a scientist. Yeah, he was a, uh, he was the scientist alchemist who did the Emerald Tablet, which I studied, um, a lot when I was in my 20s, actually. Uh, he moves quickly and freely between the worlds of the mortal and the divine, aided by his winged sandals. He is considered a soul guide or conductor of souls into the afterlife. God of boundaries, roads, and travelers, thieves, athletes, shepherds, commerce, speed, cunning, wit, and sleep. Interesting. I wonder if my sleep's going to change now as a result. That would be very interesting. Bye, Hermes. Um, <laughs> bye, Hermes. I'm just kidding. Just, I'm just yeah, kidding. Bye, bye, Hermes. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing because it's a good point because you know, the, there's just a difference in in how a one of these guys can can. Because they did, if they serve you now or they served you then, um, and they just no longer serve you, like there's something to be said for, okay, are we just going to throw the baby out with bathwater? I mean, maybe there's some aspects of that person that's good. It's like, well, no, actually, I'm going to do some time away from you for now. And if you want, and maybe we'll slowly taper off and we'll make it so that we can actually kind of move you away from everything else. And the amazing thing that's happened even just today um, has been that my time, my sense of time. So time has always been something for me that is a scarcity. It is something that I've always felt has not actually, it, it, I'm like, I'm not going to have enough time to do this and this and this. If I spend my time with my kids, I'm not going to have enough time to do this, this and this. If I spend my time doing this, then I'm not going to be able to do this. And so far today, I've just been like, and I will obviously report more in on this later, but I've just felt this really overwhelming sense of there's plenty of time. That's amazing. That was my experience today in a weird way. I wonder if I got it from you. It's like everything. What, what happened? Well, I woke up this morning at five. I just had so much to do. I had medical notes to, notes to write. I had a course to take. I had to take care of my dogs, see five patients all over the city of Atlanta, um, get do some grocery shopping, meet you and Iris for a Dutch interview in the Netherlands and then record this. And yet everything divinely fell into place. Cause I woke up this morning being like, I've got this, everything is going to flow. Like I saw it flowing and I saw myself not getting overwhelmed. It was beautiful. It felt good. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I would like to take credit for that. Yeah, I'm going to say that that was, that a, was parallel totally th- a parallel, a parallel healing. Parallel so play. thank you. Well, Chris, can I ask yeah, you some questions yeah. about your dark passenger? Oh, please, please. Let's yeah. say someone does not have access to an RTT therapist. Uh, what, how could one identify their dark passenger? And then what do you, what do you do I after say, you find it? Mm-hmm. Right. So what I would say, we talked a lot about the primal wounds last season. And obviously this relates to the primal wounds a little bit because, and, and I kind of want to make a distinction by what this is, but using one of the primal wounds, I would say that you can usually identify your dark passenger because it's wrapped in a blanket of humiliation and shame, right? Um, In the sense of 
it's behavior. It's usually the dark passenger is a form of behavior or thought patterns that arise that, that you um, don't want to identify that with destructive yeah, that you just, that you don't want to identify with. Yeah. But oftentimes do right. So oftentimes do it's, and ultimately the dark passenger is ultimately destructive. And that's kind of what I want to go to as well. Is that like, so, so more examples, like I said, the dark passenger is the part of you that knows what's good for you, but still does the opposite of that. Right. Like if you know that you feel great when you're wanting to go exercise and, um, you're, you know, continually doing that, but then you decide to go out and drink all night instead. Um, even though you have something important to do in the morning, it's like it, when it kind of comes out in the behavior form, it's usually quite extreme. It's the, it's the type, it's the part of us that experiences all sorts of addictions, um, as well as, you know, goes against our greater, our greater desire to better ourselves in whatever way. It just is like, I need to completely self-sabotage and tank my life into whatever way possible. That is what, that's the behavior aspect of the dark passenger. If it shows up as a behavior, as an actual behavior in the world. But I wanted you to talk, Anna, about your intrusive thought, because you talked about it in in the humiliation episode a little bit, about what the voice in your head that triggers the intrusive thoughts sounds like and feels like, because that is an example of an internalized dark passenger that is effectively the kind of destructive, that's all about triggering destructive thoughts and sleeplessness and da-da-da-da-da. Can I be honest and say that since my RTT, I've not really been experiencing intrusive thoughts? Oh, of course. Of course. I kind of want you to hearken oh, back God. if you can to that because other people probably well, yeah, do. Yeah, of course. I mean. Um, That's amazing though. Congratulations. Let's like honor yeah, that like, for uh, a second, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know where she is. <laughs> She's gone. My Hermes left the ballroom. Um, I don't hmm. know. what. what okay, so she used to just feel like me, a nagging me. Mm-hmm. And it'd be like, how could you um, just judgmental and shamey and then shamey on top of shamey. Oh, I know what I started to do. Oh my God. I fucking remember. This is amazing. So I used to, this is the most, most amazing fucking thing. And I wanted to make a TikTok about it. Okay. There's like three of me, let's say. Okay. There's like, okay. Let's say that there's three of me. There's angry Anna, let's say. And then there's judgmental Anna who is fucking like, I can't believe you got angry. You are, Oh, how could you get angry? How could you get angry? You shouldn't get angry. And then there's wise Anna and a wise Anna comes in and wise Anna's like, all right, all right. I know you're angry and I'm going to love the part of you that's angry. And then I focus on loving that angry part of me and accepting the anger part of me. But guess who got forgotten in the mix? The judgmental Anna. So what I started doing was I started saying, I started recognizing judgy Anna, which was like that voice and being like, and I love the part of me that doesn't love the angry part because it wasn't enough for me to just love the angry part or love the unlovable part of me. I had to not only love the unlovable part of me, I had to love the part of me that was unloving. Does that make sense? It's like there were two people in there crying out for help. It wasn't just the unloved one. It was the unloving one. So then what I started doing was when I would hear this judgmental voice, and I might have been jumping ahead, sorry, Chris, out of order to going into the healing of this. Am I? 
No, okay. no, please. No, Sorry. No, no, but it. yeah, I just started noticing that it wasn't enough for me to just love the unlovable stuff, like love the part of Anna that has PMDD or love the part of Anna that's angry or love the bitchy Anna. I had to love the part of myself that didn't like that in me. So I'd be like, I'm, I love, the, I love the PMDD part of Anna. And I love the part of Anna that doesn't love the PMDD because I started to recognize that the person who was judging the part of me that was judging my human flaws was equally in need of love as the flawed part of me. And I, and I started doing that consistently and consistently. And I really don't hear that voice much anymore. And when I do, I'm like, awesome. It's an opportunity to not just love the part of me that's being unloved, but to love the part of me that's being unloving. And then I should probably go the next step and love the part of me that is fucking awesome for recognizing this and being loving. <laughs> and then it just becomes so and then it just loving becomes yourself, this like it's love, just party. love party. But yeah, that's what's been happening, and I, I attribute a lot of that to the RTT. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And so, what I kind of want to touch on really quickly with that is that you know, I, you know, dark passenger in its worst form, like I said, is is I say in its worst form, and it's most hard to love form is causing behavior that is highly destructive. But the other dark passenger inside can also sometimes refer to them as their inner Becky, um, which is particularly bitchy and just kind of takes over sometimes for women. Um, It's the Mr. Hyde. It's kind of the part of you that is not only critical of others, but also critical of yourself. And so Anna just described the perfect one of like, it's the judgmental Anna, right? It's like the judgmental Anna who's just like, hey... I'm going to totally judge you for having a problem with this right now and things like that. And so what I wanted to touch on really quickly is um, a process that you can use to kind of help to love this judgmental side, especially if you're identifying with it. So if you're not to the point where Anna is and you're not and you're identifying with that judgmental thing and you're saying that judgmental side is right. Like I am the bitchiest person ever. And that is I'm a fucking terrible person blah, 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 blah. And it's called, it's a common process um, in cognitive behavioral therapy, and it is called reappraisal. I have been doing this all week and it has been utterly amazing for me. I know it's only been a week, but I've been doing the process on my own and just finding it that it's been exceptionally helpful because what it's been doing is it's allowing me to disarm that judgmental voice, right? Which is different than loving it, Right. But it allows by allowing me to disarm that voice and actually say, actually, there's a distortion going on in the way that this thing is thinking. I'm actually going to do something about this. Right. Because this is a very destructive thought that's coming in my head. And it's actually following one of these common distortions. So I'm going to read you guys the common, uh, the cognitive distortions. And Anna, if any of these resonate with you, oh, um, please let I me recognize, know. I recognize, I recognize all of them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. All right. So, um, so the process goes is this for reappraisal. The first is that you basically write down all of your emotional, negative emotional responses that you have. And I'm going to write down the ones that I wrote down today. I, okay. So, um, in case you guys know, I'm gluten-free and I really wanted to make, um, a, <laughs> what you don't know is that I really wanted to make some gravy on Monday night. And I, uh, made some gravy and it was made with a demi-glace, which has wheat in it. And I feel scared about scared and mad at myself for eating wheat last night. 
I was scared. I was literally scared that I had eaten wheat and that it was going to affect me in a negative way and that something bad had happened as a result. And I was going down this whole wormhole of like, oh my God, maybe the protein in my body that does this and this and this with gluten-free is now re-triggered again. And I'm going to come up with all the systems and I have to go through a three-month detox just because I literally had something that had residual amounts of wheat in it. That was one of my negative thoughts. Um, On Sunday, I was upset around the time required for my kids. Going back to the beginning of this conversation. I was upset that Luke didn't comment or care when I told him about my time issues. When I basically said, I'm really stressed out because I have so much time that he didn't really care. He just ignored me. He didn't even, he like, he listened and then he just like walked on. Um, And then the other one on Sunday was the feeling of being rushed, not having enough time, only two hours and I have to get things done, but I don't, uh, but I want to walk and read, but I didn't accomplish anything, right? So this whole like, I'm being judgmental about myself about accomplishing things. So I'm giving you guys those things because they're kind of mundane things, but they were really distressing me on Sunday. And they were causing me to spiral into this kind of depression because I was resisting them so much. I was like, I shouldn't be thinking this stuff. Not only were the thoughts themselves distorted, um, showing these cognitive distortions, but so was my reaction to experiencing them because I thought I should be better. I thought I should be better than all those thoughts. So after you write down everything, the idea is to go about correcting the mistaken reasoning so that you can permanently reprogram your brain to stop having these distortions so that you can actually see things for the way that they are. So the first one of the cognitive distortions is all or nothing thinking. It's a tendency to think in extremes like always and never. So for instance, my boyfriend broke up with me and I always ruined my relationships. Yeah. I think we can all, we've all experienced the all or never bullshit. Yes. Yep. Overgeneralization, the tendency to make broad assumptions based on limited specifics. So uh, if one person thinks I'm stupid, everyone Mm -hmm. will. Mental filter, the tendency to focus on a small negative details to the exclusion of the big picture, which is my A plus average doesn't matter. I got to see on an assignment. Yep. Used to do that. Yes. Yep. Um, Disqualifying the positive. The tendency to dismiss positive aspects of an experience for irrational reasons. If my so, for instance, if my friend compliments me, she's probably just saying that out of pity. Uh, Jumping to conclusions, the tendency to make unfounded negative assumptions, often in the form of attempted mind reading or fortune telling, right? Which is something that we bring up in the um, how to not kill your partner in the pandemic. All of these are things you can do with your partner. Exactly. Exactly. So if my romantic interest doesn't text me today, he must not be interested. Um, catastrophizing the tendency to magnify or minimize certain details of an experience, painting it as worse or more. I think I know someone who does that one. No, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I'd never do that. (laughs) You always do that. (laughs) I always do that. Oh God. (laughs) If my wife leaves me, then I will never be able to recover from my misery. It's literally the end of the fucking world. Oh, is that a catastrophe? That's a catastrophizing one. Yeah. Everything is over. It's it's a very, it's a very, and I'm allowed to say this because I'm Jewish. It's a very Jewish grandmother thing to say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm, I will just, I will just smile and nod, but I can't do that. So I'm going to say, yeah. Um, emotional reasoning, the tendency to take someone's emotions as evidence of objective truth. So if I feel offended by someone else's remark, then he must've wronged me. Right. Um, Wait, say that. Oh, oh, I feel like that's not the best example. If I feel like you did it, you did it. (laughs) That's exactly it. 
If I feel that you slighted me, then obviously you didn't think you cheated on me in a dream. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. You must have actually done it because you treated on me in a dream. That's spiritual reasoning uh, or that's like convoluted spiritual reasoning. Uh, Should statements, the tendency to apply rigid rules uh, to how one should or must behave. Um, my friend criticized my attitude, and that is something that friends should never do. Ugh, should such um, an injustice wound. We could dissect all these according to your – the filter is according to your wound. Oh, that's so true. Oh, that would be really, really interesting. Um, especially because should – say. so my dad used to say that should doesn't exist because should is a societal construct. It's also an injustice construct, but it's definitely a societal contract because – when do you ever say should when you're not saying something that you're trying to get, you're basically using peer pressure or societal pressure to get something to happen right. in a second. Okay. So number nine is labeling the tendency to describe oneself in the form of absolute labels. If I make a miscalculation and error, error, I am a total humiliation. It makes me a total idiot. Humiliation. Yeah, there you go. Humiliation and personalization, the tendency to attribute negative outcomes to oneself without evidence. Uh, I would also say, I would that's think that's abandonment. Um, maybe. It could be. If my wife is in a bad mood, then I must yeah, have done abandonment. To oh, that's totally abandonment. Yeah, that's codependent. Just abandonment. All right. All right. So going back, well, all or nothing that's thinking. Injustice. Injustice. Yeah. Overgeneralization. Uh, I think probably rejection. Overgeneralization. I think it might be control too. You're trying to control the reality. Betrayal. Betrayal. Yep. yep. Betrayal. Mental filter. Which one was that again? That's uh, my one good, my, my like overall goodness doesn't matter because I got one. Oh, rejection. Self-rejection. Yeah. It's the self-rejection. Yep. Um, Disqualifying the positive, also self-rejection, I think. It could be all of them. Yeah. Um, It could, that one could be all of them. Right. Um, Yeah. But the example is if my friend compliments me, she's probably just saying it out of pity, which is rejection. Yeah. Rejection. because you're, just you're finding a way to reject yourself always... regardless of the situation. Exactly. Jumping to conclusions would be injustice. I feel like I do that a lot. So it must be abandonment. <laughs> <laughs> you do. I got to love that. Like you're always just like, oh, well, this is the case. And therefore they must be died. They're going to die. Yeah. If they're not like you're amazing in the way that you jump to, c- to catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is definitely abandonment wound. <laughs> Oh, it's definitely abandonment wound. One hundred percent. It is all going to go to shit, and everyone Everyone's is going to die me. if I'm not with them all the yeah. time. All right. Um, emotional reasoning, um, which is you know, if I feel offended by someone else's remark, then he must have wronged That's me. Like betrayal slash um, injustice. Yep. Uh, should statements uh, definitely betrayal? Oh, I think. That, uh, oh, betrayal oh, oh yeah. Either one. I agree. Yeah. Because should they're both trying to control. They're both trying to control, um, outwardly trying to control, actively trying to control. Uh, and then we said labeling was humiliation and personalization was abandonment. Yeah. yeah. I must have done something that goes against um, one of the four assumptions or the four agreements, which is don't take anything personally. Um, and so the last step of this, once you've gone through into your emotions and you've checked them. Um, so let me just give you guys the example that I have, which was um, the wheat one, right? Let's give the weak wheat one was that I was catastrophizing in that particular case in which I was basically saying I ate one thing of wheat and therefore I'm going to have to go back. Like it's going to undo all the work that I've done for the last seven months. Um, and I'm going to have to start over. So that was an example of catastrophizing, like the, the 
the logic was not correct because I could easily take a pill like a gluten reduction pill and got gotten over the effects of it immediately. So there were things that I could do to remedy it. And it probably wasn't the case anyway, which is also true. It wasn't the case. So then you apply Socratic questioning. Socratic questioning is a uh, way to ask, offer, you basically ask basic questions about the negative response. Um, once you've identified the cognitive um, distortion, you say, is this thought realistic? Am I basing my thoughts on facts or on feelings? What is the evidence for this thought? Could I be misinterpreting the evidence? Am I viewing a, compliment, a com complicated situation as black and white? Am I having this thought out of habit or do facts support it? And so by asking yourself all those questions, you're kind of able to dismantle everything and you're, you're doing it to such a level that your mind will be the, the next time all or nothing thinking comes up, that dis, that distortion comes up, it'll be less pronounced. Right. And so then you just keep doing it and you keep doing it and keep doing it. And eventually what you realize is that you are reprogramming, um, you're reprogramming your mind to not have the same um, distortions for the, for similar thoughts or feelings. It reminds me so much of the judge your neighbor worksheet, which I actually say have saved on my phone and refer to often. It's by Katie Byron or Byron Katie. Oh, really? Do you know about that? Okay. I feel like you may have shown it to me at some point. So please, okay. Well, well I'll put it me. in the show notes cause it's a great, it's a little worksheet. And you think about someone who's hurt you. Of course, coming from the abandonment wound, a.k.a. codependent, all my issues stem from interpersonal relationships. So mine is like, judge. it's called the judge your neighbor worksheet. And, you, and it says like, in this situation, who angers, confuses, hurts, saddens, or disappoints you and why? And you say like, I am blank with, you know, I am angry with Paul because he lied to me. And then you say, in this situation, what do you want him or her to do? Blah, blah, blah. In order for you to be happy, what do you need him or her to do? Da, 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 da. And then you have to ask these questions for every. For every answer, you have to ask these four questions. Is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Who or what would you be without that thought? And then you have to turn it all around and then say, I lied to Paul. I lied to, to me. Paul didn't lie to me. Paul told me the truth. You have to like flip everything around. Okay. And the whole idea is in doing this, you just kind of flip your reality on its head and kind of get out of the habit of the blame shame game. Anyway, yeah. it just, it just yeah. reminds me of it. it and I'll put it in the in show notes. It's free on, on Google. So I, I think it's legally I'm allowed to just post it. Yeah. I love that. And what's coming up right now for me right now is that it's like, what this, this process sounds like it's like really fucking arduous, right? You're like, I can't think of that for every single never for negative response I have. Okay. If you're, that is your argument, then think about how much fucking time you spend on the negative response in the first place, like going over and over and over and over and over again in your head, like how many hours you've lost or how many, how it feels to have that experience over and over again and just like cascade and expand all of the emotions that come out of that. Um, and then maybe you just, say, okay, fine. I'll deal with it. I like, I like, I like. So, you know, ultimately with the dark passenger here, we're going to talk about a couple of things we've mentioned so far, um, how Anna kind of dealt with her intrusive thought stuff, which she said naturally kind of went away with doing RTT. But Anna, can you explain now kind of what your ultimate thing with your PMDD dark passenger, how you ended up healing that? All right. Well, I'm not sure. 
or I don't even know if it's completely healing. healed because we're going to find out next month. Just kidding. But the point is, is that every month, right before my period, I get severe PMS. And when I say severe, I mean like anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, destruction, destructive tendencies, lashing out, saying shit you can never take back doing really, really fucking destructive things. Um, anyways, the majority of the time I'm trying to figure out how do I figure this out? How do I fix this? If I was a better meditator, if I accepted it, if I did this healing, if I did that healing, if I went gluten-free, if I went vegan, if I took, if I had acupuncture, if I did this vitamin, if I did that vitamin, if I took this or that, like, I got rid of coffee. Like I tried every fucking thing in the book, every natural remedy. I finally did Lexapro and that really worked. It got rid of it a lot. But it would still, still, even with the Lexapro, it would come back, but not with such a vengeance. Well, what happened was this. Last month or last cycle, I had my regular, you know, PMDD thing where I got destructive and I hear this voice in my head and it's like, burn it down, burn it down. And I like start scanning my head for anything that bothers me. And it just so happened that a certain person came up in my mind who I attributed my anger to and I called that person up. And I told that person exactly what I thought of them or something that they did. And I hung up and I was like, oh, fuck. Like if saying Anna would never do this, PMDD is such a fucking bitch. And I went and told my husband what I did. I was like, I just called so-and-so and I told him about such and such, which was something that like many people were upset about, but no one was saying anything. And I said it. And my husband was like, you know what, Anna? Good for you. You said what everyone else is thinking. You got it off your chest and he can do with it that information what he wants and it's over. And and then I'm like thinking for a minute and uh, after I hung up with my husband and I was suddenly like, what if, what if my PMDD wasn't my worst enemy? What if my PMDD was like the best part of me? Like what if the PMDD yeah. is the fiercest, rawest, bitchiest part of me that's willing to burn it all down what if that ruthless side of me is a fucking gift? Like, what if, what if I've been wrong all these years? What if I've been so afraid of what she burns down? What if everything she wanted to burn down was just waiting to be lit, you know? And I just had this thought kept coming over. Everything I want to burn down is just been waiting to be lit. That could be a destructive thought, but that. that's what it felt. It's like the thing that I said when I called that person out, it was something I just didn't have the guts to say before. But my PMDD pulled it out of me. And it's funny because my dog is flipping out in the background. It's like she's feeling that energy. So our shaman Robbie has this great technique. She says, when there's a part of you that you need to accept that you're, you're struggling with, you need to sing a song about it and, and make laugh about mm -hmm. it. So Chris and I had one, you know, years ago and we started that this, this, um, with Crit Robbie, my song was, I love to complain. I love to suffer. What was yours, Chris? Uh, I hate being human. I hate being yeah. human. So after my husband and I had this talk about how amazing it was that I like told this person what I needed to say, I'm like, you know what? I love my PMDD. I love my PMDD. I'm a fucking bitch and I love it. I'm a bitch and I love it. <laughs> and I just started singing for like an hour. I'm a bitch and I love it. Burn it down. And I felt so good to finally embrace the dark passenger and be like, she's fucking awesome. Like I'm tired of putting her 
I'm tired of being like, there she is, and she shows up every month, and she does her bullshit, and she's a fucking bitch, and I don't like her, and I just have to wait until she leaves. No, now I'm like, I love this woman. I can't wait to see her again. We're going to have so much fun. We're going to burn some shit down, and it's going to be fun, and I'm going to love her. So that's that's, that's where so I am awesome. with it. And, and you know what, that's, that's kind of where it ultimately comes to, because what I think both, it, it, even if your dark base passenger is the behavioral side in any case, and this is where I think I'm going to come to with Hermes, but it's like totally brand new. Is that like, all of these things have served you at one point of view, another, even the addict inside of you has happened as a result of, of something else has happened and it has served you as much as we think we are self-destructive in whatever way we are. Ultimately, it all serves us in some way, whether it's because it's playing out some fantasy that we deserve to be punished or anything like that. They all end up serving something. So ultimately, the ability to embrace and love the judgmental Becky inside of you or the the burn it down bitch inside of you or the um, cold hearted masculine entity that is like a totally fucking terrible parent um, inside of you, like the ability to love this is what allows us to uncompartmentalize it, which is super, super important. Like either when I say uncompartmentalize, I mean like if it's a dark passenger that you've just like pushed around to the side and you only like bring out at night, or if it's the type that, you know, um, you identify with, or if you're just the type who that, that scary side of you, that's just like, Oh my God, where did that come from? That thought came out of me. How in the hell did that come out? I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Who am I? right? Like we don't identify with it. And that's, that is like uncompartmentalizing that recognizing that allows it to heal and love us. But I would really, really recommend that if you are dealing with one of these dark passengers that is behavioral and is destructively behavioral, that you do this with support. You don't just go ahead and be like, Hey, I'm going to uncompartmentalize yeah, I'm just all of a sudden your life makes and just sing a song. No, don't just get off your meds and sing a song. No. What, I, what I'm trying to get at here is that I'm, I, I, I embraced that part of me. I'm loving that part of me in spite of her bitchiness. I'm loving her instead of hating her or thinking that she's not me. She is me. She's also yeah. me. And, 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 and to think she's not me, that I'm an amazing, nurturing, caring, compassionate saint of a woman, 26 days out of the month and three days I'm a psychopath. No, I'm a mixture of both of them. No, I think, I think that that's, that's really it, right? Is that we're so ashamed of all the parts of us that are not, that are not perfect moral creatures that are not totally got our shit together that aren't, we're, we're just so ashamed of that, that we like to just push it to the side and pretend it's not us or just get scared by it and pretend you know, or, or the other hand of just like totally embracing it and not being able to like recognize that it is a self-destructive part of us, right. That is actually pulling us down. And like, but the thing is, is that if Anna is me and I am Anna, then my fucking dark passengers are definitely me, right. Because they exist inside my head and they exist inside my body and they exist inside all of me. So therefore, like I fucking love Hermes. Like now that I'm doing this, I feel like I'm processing this even more is like, it was funny because just now when I was singing, I hate being human. I was like, that's such bullshit. I don't hate being human. I fucking love being human. Right. And I'm seeing already, I'm seeing that like these whole stories, 
my dark passenger love to say I fucking hate being human. I hate being human. I have to be efficient about life and I have to control it as much as fucking possible because I cannot deviate from, I cannot be hurt. I cannot be hurt again. I cannot handle it. I am too fragile. I am too brittle. And if you try and make me bend, I will break. And I will continue to break over and over and over again. And that was the MO. And who would want to be a fucking brittle, fragile human like that? Like nobody wants to be that, right? So all of a sudden you realize you're not the brittle, fragile human. You don't have to. You're actually this totally fucking sensuous, supple, divine feminine who can cope with any fucking thing. And then all of a sudden you don't hate being human because you can cope with it all. Mm -hmm. And you can handle it. Not only can you cope with it, but you can, you can. Yeah. And for me, maybe, yeah. Yeah. I won't even pull up, we'll pull out my maybe. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I think cool. ultimately All the right. irony of everything is our greatest strength, our greatest weakness, our greatest weakness is our greatest strength. Like the PMDD part of me, which I thought was the most unlovable, hideous side of me is actually a badass bitch. And I love her. Yeah. Yep. And the, and the, the side of me that is ruthlessly efficient and doesn't, you know, want to do this is able to support, to have a job that supports my entire family. So the rest of my, my kids can be homeschooled by their dad, Mm -hmm. you know, and And mothers uh, do not have to be entertainers or teachers. Mothers don't have to be entertainers. That's it. All right. That's it. It can be other things. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Spiritual Fix. Please be sure to tune in for our last episode in the series where we're going to be talking all about the healing. And be sure to like us on TikTok, this.spiritual.fix. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell you all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilsey.com forward slash discover.